I do want to share with you uh, and continue our series on kingdom living. Uh, so we're going to be doing this up until the summer, and uh, we're going to be working through from Matthew 5 to 7. It's about 19 weeks of talks. Uh, but over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking uh, very specifically at chapter 5, and uh, we're going to divide that over into six different talks, six different subjects, and uh, is where Jesus starts talking about relationships in the kingdom. So how we relate to one another, which is a big part of kingdom living. And, and this is the list up there on the, on the projector of the titles to whet your appetite. So we're going to be talking uh, about honoring people. Uh, we're going to be talking about crystal clear thinking. We're going to be talking about adultery in that. And we're going to be talking about deep heart connections. We're going to be talking about divorce. We're going to be talking about transparent honesty. We're talking about oaths. We're talking about resolving conflict and revenge. And we're going to be talking about loving those who don't love you, loving your enemies. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some pretty big subjects, I think. But this week's going to be murder. Uh, we're going to be looking at murder. So I'm quite looking forward to that. Hopefully you won't end up murdering people as a result of this talk. Uh, but that's what we're going to be talking about today. I'm just going to pray and then I'm going to get into it. So Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you for your presence here right now. We just want to thank you for uh, touching people, healing people, even as we've been in your presence. We just invite you to keep doing that. I want to say to you, Jesus, this is your church, so you have your way, <laughs> and you do what you want to do with us this morning. We just uh, open ourselves to you. We just invite you to just keep coming on us now in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Amen. Okay, well, perhaps you'd like to just turn in your Bibles or onto your smartphone or wherever else you hold the Bible and look at Matthew chapter 5, and I'm just going to read to you verses 21 to 26. Now, if you remember, when I introduced the subject of kingdom living, if you haven't heard the talk yet, it's on the web. I'd, I'd encourage you to listen to it because we covered verses 17 to 20 just before the passage we're going to read today. And I said that in that particular passage, I thought there were three keys that Jesus gave us to understanding what kingdom living is all about. And that first thing that Jesus showed us is that Jesus has already done everything. He's done all that's needed to justify us before God. Secondly, that kingdom living is about the heart. It's about what happens in the heart, how God changes our heart. And thirdly, that kingdom living is all about our identity, the new identity that we now have in Christ. I'm going to be referring loosely to that key, those three different points as I go through today to illustrate how that key works in the passage we're now going to look at. So Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 to 26 go like this. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. My goodness. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. 
Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Well, from that passage, what we can see straight away is that Jesus doesn't want us to murder people. He doesn't want us to murder them either physically, emotionally, verbally, or spiritually. He wants us to understand also the purpose that is behind the law of God as expressed in kingdom living, which is to honor people, to esteem them highly, and to value people highly. So that's what today is about. And Jesus starts his teaching with quoting one of uh, the laws of Moses. He quotes from the Ten Commandments, which he had just told us in the previous couple of verses that he came to fulfill, and that is the commandment not to murder. And uh, this command is not to murder, not to commit homicide. Some older versions translate that word kill, do not kill, but that's not actually accurate. Uh, Jesus doesn't forbid killing of, for example, animals, or of taking life absolutely, which leaves open questions as to whether authorities can legitimately exercise capital punishment, especially in response to murder, or even whether there can be anything such as a just war. So I'll leave you to think about that one. I just thought I'd throw that in for free. But murder goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, goes back to the book of Genesis, where Cain murders his brother Abel in a fit of jealous rage. And God says, his blood cries out to me from the earth. And the first crime that was ever committed in our world soiled the earth, and the earth still cries out. The earth still cries out. We see this in Romans, that the earth cries out. The whole of creation cries out for the revelation of us, the sons of God. There is still that waiting for the recreation of the whole world. But it all started back then when the first person, the first crime was committed. And it's also in Genesis where we find out why God takes murder so seriously and the extreme punishment he requires in the covenant he makes with Noah. So if you look in Genesis chapter 9 verses 5 and 6, I'll just read that to you. This is what God says to Noah. He says, and each human being, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. From each human being, I will demand an accounting for the life of another. So whoever sheds human blood, well, by humans shall their blood be shed. Why? For in the image of God has God made mankind. In the image of God, God has made mankind. And this is important for us to understand a kind of foundational understanding of why God hates murder is because the murdering of a human being God takes personally. (laughs) He is personally slighted. He is defamed by it. He is offended. His image is maligned. So anyone who commits murder, God says, must also lose their lives. In other words, you send that murderer straight to me and let me deal with him. And so do not murder is a very serious law, not just on a human level, but to God. He takes it personally. It's essentially anti-God. It's an offense to who he is and to his personhood. Okay, so you've got that, how serious murder is and the consequences of it. 
And now Jesus takes that very serious law and remember all that it means and now he fills it out. He makes it even bigger. But remember the seriousness from where we've just come from. He says, in, and this is my word, he says, if you break this law, you actually physically kill somebody. Well, that means that you're going to be subject to judgment in a human court. And the penalty it imposes in those days would most certainly have been death. But here's the law of Jesus. But I tell you, verse 22, if you get angry with a brother or sister, if you call them names to undermine them, or if you curse them, God's going to judge you too. Because he sees not just our actions, the actual act of murder, for example, he sees our reactions and the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. So it's a heart matter. See, from Jesus' point of view, the root of murder is not just the physical act. That's just an external expression of what has already been going on in the heart. It it comes from there. Now, murder starts in the dishonoring of another human being who is made in the image of God. Which, as you know will go to the very root and purpose of honor. We talk a lot about honor in this church. It's a very important part of how we want to treat one another. It goes right to the root of it because essentially it means seeing everybody in the image of God. And so dishonoring another child of God is is just as serious to Jesus as murder. I want you just to feel the weight of that. Think about it. You may not have physically harmed anybody. It's unlikely. I trust that any of us will actually commit murder. But you've certainly annihilated some people in your mind, haven't we? I was hearing Chris Vallotton recently. Did I mention I spent the day with Chris Vallotton? I just thought I'd drop that in. And uh, he told a story about uh, a time he was grumbling to God about his wife. I mean, I never do this. This is just terrible. But he was grumbling to God about his wife. And when God suddenly interrupts him and he says, who is that that you're talking about? Is that my daughter you're criticizing? Because, she know, you know, she was my daughter well before she was your wife. So you be careful what you say. Um, miraculously, he said, the grumbling stopped. Uh, it's just. And, you know, now, even as it was in Jesus' time, there's still no court in the law that would convict you for just evil thinking, although there's an entertaining film called Minority Report, which proposes that as a possibility. I dread the thought. But at the moment, there isn't a court in the land that would, convert, would convict you just for uh, wrong thinking. But God sees perfectly and knows every thought and motive, and he counts it as if we had already done what our minds had conceived, and he holds us to account. I think that's a very high standard. So in verse 22, Jesus expands the thought of what I've just expressed, and he gives us three examples of the kind of dishonor that God sees and judges. 
And I want to encourage you, in a way, this is a bit heavy, but I want you to feel the weight and the seriousness of this. And remember that Jesus says he's already done it all. He's already fulfilled it all. But at the same time, that should free us up to see the full extent of what God requires from us so that we can see how we can change and be more like Jesus. So let me just go through this. The first dishonor is dishonor by anger. Verse 22, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. I've got to say, I, I struggled a bit with this. I was thinking about it. I thought, oh, hold on a minute. Doesn't it say that God is slow to anger? So that must mean at some point God gets angry. And actually, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see plenty of examples and you wouldn't want to be there, would you, when God gets angry? So God's completely righteous and holy and he's slow to anger, but he will get angry. And then Jesus got angry, didn't he? I mean, famously, on one occasion at church, he got a whip and he started hitting people and telling them to get out. I mean, I would love to have seen that and been a fly on the wall, but I wouldn't want to be in his church. Uh, and then uh, Paul got angry over doctrine and he had fallouts with the other apostles. In fact, on one occasion, the apostles argued vehemently. That means with violence. I was just going to say, actually, that um, <laughs> this is just a thought. It's dangerous when you're preaching for flashes of thought to be paid attention to. <laughs> but just a thought. My uh, brother is married to a Spaniard. And there is something culturally different about our view of anger. I just feel like I want to draw to your attention. There are people here from other cultures as well. So the British kind of idea of anger is anybody who gets a bit emotional and raises their voice, they're angry. Whereas for my Spanish sister-in-law, that's just normal life. That's just how they speak to one another. And when we first got to know her, it was a bit of a shock. She always seemed to be angry with us. But actually she wasn't. She was just a very passionate person. I think that's an important thing to note, that when we're talking about anger, there is a cultural reference that we need to bear in mind. So the apostles did vehemently argue. David Devonish was telling us recently about in Russia how they speak to one another. The pastors and the elders meetings are nothing like. We would say these people are not able to be elders because they're just too violent and threatening with one another. So is Jesus saying you mustn't get angry with your brothers and sisters? No, he isn't, actually. And Paul says in Ephesians, he says, be angry, but do not sin. Be angry. So have you ever heard a sermon called Be Angry? This could be a new way to go. Be angry, but do not sin. Or another version says, in your anger, do not sin. The presumption being you will get angry, you should get angry even, but don't sin. So what does that mean? You see, sin in anger is not the act of anger, but it's in the heart or the motivation for anger. So Jesus is warning us about where anger comes from, where God sees. So, for example, why are you angry with that person? Is it justified? Is it right to be angry with them? Because even in your anger, don't dishonor them. 
That means don't make that person less in your eyes or in the eyes of others than they are in the sight of God. Don't destroy them with your anger and commit identity murder. And I've had great fun trying to think of all different reasons why you should and shouldn't get angry with somebody. I'm going to take you through a few of them. There's all kinds of reasons why you shouldn't get angry with your husband, your wife, your family member. I'm going to get in so much trouble later. I just know this. Or somebody else who's in the church and you are not justified in your anger. They, they say that you often preach to yourself before you preach to others. Just want to say that, put that out there. But firstly, you simply just don't like them. And that's why you get angry with them. You just don't like them. There's a personality clash. You get angry irrationably. Is that the right word, irrationably? The word that's the right one that I can't quite say right now. But it's irrational for you to get angry with them. You just don't like them. There's a clash. Well, actually, do you know, have you ever found how God often puts people in your life and they just are the ones that wind you up? in your workplace, or whatever. And how many times you find that God deals with you and your personality and your character through that relationship? It's an opportunity for grace, not an opportunity for anger. There's some relationships (laughs) just being restored over the other side of the room there. So it's just a personality thing, or you're jealous of them. And so what you're trying to do is to pull them down, to undermine them, because you're jealous of them. That's not a right way of, that's not a right motive for anger. Or you're holding things against them. In other words, there's unforgiveness in your heart. That's not right. Jesus says, if you don't forgive one another from the heart, then I can't forgive you. There's a block on my forgiveness for you. Unforgiveness is not a way to justify anger. Or you want revenge against them. You know, the thing is about anger is that it gives you energy for the fight. That is not a right use of anger to get revenge. You want their attention. Now, maybe you've just felt overlooked and you've got low self-esteem, low sense of being undervalued, and so you, you get angry with them because they're not paying attention to you. But that's your problem, not theirs. Or you want to control them. And you use anger to manipulate people. I've seen this time and time again, actually, that people, especially in close relationships, will use anger, silences, to manipulate the other. To create an atmosphere where it's impossible to function. Or you are so angry with them, that you wish they'd never been born or even wished that they were dead. Does anybody have any idea whether that's a wrong one or not? <laughs> but you know, ultimately, that's where you can get to if you don't resolve and deal with anger. And there are other times when it's right to be angry with someone and you are completely justified in your anger. Can I just say this is not a comprehensive list, but these are just some ideas to get you thinking about it. So, for example, they are believing a lie about themselves and are on a journey to self-destruction. Oh, that gets me angry. 
When you see somebody and they're just believing a lie from the enemy and they're just on this road of destruction. I mean, I, I just say that there's several occasions that I've stood in the way of these kinds of people and even raised my voice to compel them or to shake them, to get a hold of them, to see sense. That's not what God says about you. That's not what God thinks. That's not what I think about you. Stop! Or they are abusing their spouse or someone else and refuse to change. And so the reaction, and Alison and I have been involved in this, where a husband refused to see what he was doing was wrong and abusing his wife. We had to actually help her. We had to hide her from that husband to escape the abuse. And I've got to tell you, if that man had come anywhere near her, I would have probably physically restrained him with my fists. It's a righteous indignation and anger to protect somebody that is vulnerable. I think that's righteous anger. Or matters of injustice and unrighteousness. You know, your anger is against, in that instance, the action of those who should know better or have within their power the ability to make things right. It's right to be angry when we see injustice in our society or in one another and in other people's lives. Or sometimes, and this is a slightly different angle on it, but sometimes people express anger and it's a symptom of something else that's nothing to do with you. <laughs> it comes from a much deeper place. It comes out of pain or disappointment and healing is needed. And I sometimes call this church leader anger because it seems to be that we get the brunt of that Every now and again, it seems like you're the person, the safe person that they can finally explode at and let it out. And you say, okay, what's this really about? And you're just there to lance the boil. What a privilege. It is. I've learned not to take those things too personally, but to ask questions. There are many other examples. But essentially, the difference between righteous and unrighteous anger is that righteous anger wants restoration and it wants the best for that person. Live up to who you really are. That's not you. You're better than that. That's righteous anger. Unrighteous anger wants to cause harm and pain and even permanent injury or death to someone. So do you get angry? Yes. In fact, if you don't ever get angry, there's another kind of problem there. Get angry, but don't sin. Is your anger justified? Are your motives pure? Don't dishonor people because God sees and he will judge rightly. I want to invite you just to let the Spirit of God impact you on that one. Dishonor by anger. The second example of dishonor that God judges, Jesus says, is dishonor by insult. So he says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And... uh, this is about name calling, calling people's names. And racker was a common insult, which doesn't sound too bad to us, you racker. 
Um, it was a common insult used in Jesus' time. It meant something like, you empty head, or you idiot. Uh, and name-calling was highly insulting anyway in Jewish culture. And the reason for it was because they believed that it, it, it stripped away a person's identity. And in its place, another identity was substituted. Names and the names that were given to people were very important. They, they spoke of prophetic destiny. They spoke of promises that God had made. I mean, Jesus is an example. His name meant Savior. That's an important name for Jesus to have. So name calling is something that was seen quite seriously anyway in their culture. Although I've got to say, Jesus didn't seem to hold back, did he, when he started calling names? <laughs> I mean, he was good at insulting people, wasn't he? I mean, look at what he said. He sort of turned to the Pharisees and the religious people. He called them hypocrites, just in a sweeping generalization. You hypocrites, you whitewashed walls. Uh, then he, he said, he turned to his disciples and said, you foolish men. So Jesus didn't seem to hold back on insulting. And, uh, and then Paul calls the Galatians, you foolish Galatians. There you go. How would you like that if I stood up and said to you, you foolish jubilee? Uh, so that's what Paul says to the Galatians. And he really goes for the Cratons. I love what he says about the Cratons. He's writing to Titus and he says, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cratons are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. <laughs> now, that's some name calling, isn't it? I mean, Paul went for it there. But you see... So Jesus is not against insulting someone <laughs> unless that ins insult is designed to limit, undermine, or destroy another person's reputation or intelligence, which was clearly not what is not what motivated Jesus or Paul. You know, so going back to the Titus example, the Cratons, these lazy, stupid liars, and the testimony is true. Paul goes on to say, for this reason, reprove them severely so that they might be sound in the faith. That was his motivation. Get to them, rile them, upset them, shake them, make them see how stupid they're being. Because I want them to be sound in their faith. I don't want them going down these routes. So the motivation, the insult was to bring a reaction, to change a mindset, to lead to repentance. So I'm thinking of using a lot more insults in my pastoral care. <laughs> I didn't hear an amen there. Uh, I'll move on. <laughs> but as with anger, this is about the hidden person. It's about the motivation and the intention. And it can be such a subtle distinction. Sometimes it's difficult to see where the line is. So another cultural comment. In the UK here, we quite enjoy banter, don't we? We quite enjoy sort of teasing people, uh, even verging on sarcasm. That's actually a big part of the British kind of way of, of speaking about one another. And in a sense, there's nothing wrong with that if it's affectionate. But I'd say that even here, we need to be careful. We can quite easily undermine somebody, even if that wasn't your original intention, especially with repetition. A few years ago, in the context of our discussions as a leadership team around honor, we decided that as a leadership team that we just wouldn't do sarcastic banter. 
because we recognized how damaging this can be, whether we mean it or not. So, for example, what can often happen is that people will tease somebody around their gift. So you might say, you're, you're prophetic, you should know. Or you might say to a Bible teacher, well, you're a Bible teacher, you tell me. And all this is sort of meant in, in fun and a kind of grudging respect. But what we found is that often it can have the opposite effect on the person with the gift. And you end up, especially if you keep saying these kind of things, with it sounding more like mockery, uh, undermining not only the gift, of the, uh, but the person. So I just want you to know, we don't do that. We don't do that about you, and we don't do that with one another. Something we take very seriously. But at the root of what Jesus says, we need to understand that there is an incredible significance to the names that we give people. Now, what we say to one another can have so much power. (laughs) You know, we are made in the image of God who spoke the world into being. And we also are like him, made in his image, have creative power to in what we say. And what we say can either make or break a person, especially if you're in a position of responsibility or authority. Parents, with your children, you have so much power to either release them or confine them with your words. You'll never do that. Or you can do anything. You are so gifted. just feel like God wants me to speak over somebody right now, actually. We need to speak names of power and authority and significance over one another. It's so important. I just feel like, for you, Jen, I just want to say, you are a powerful woman of God. And you've just got so much gifting. And you're learning about mothering, but it's because you're going to be a mother in the church. You've got so much potential to bless and encourage and pass to people. People just want to talk to you. You've got this gift where people can just open up so easily. I just want to honor you for that. I just want to say to John, John Smith here is my brother-in-law. You know, you're an amazing guy. You have achieved incredible things. He leads a project with truly broken people, and I know the cost that that's been to you. And I just want to honor you for that. You are a powerful man of God. You set people free. You have an amazing gift of healing. You are a life transformer from heaven. I just want to honor you. I want to encourage you to do that with somebody today. Just give them names. Speak names of them that release and bring life, not confinement. So let me ask you, what are some of the names that you give to others? You know, the people in your life. What do you call them? Do you honor them? Do you hold them in high regard? What about in secret? In your thinking, in your private conversations at home? You know, would Would people around you be happy to hear what you say about them and think about them? Let me just say this, and I mean it with all seriousness. 
God sees, God knows, and God judges. Name-calling that insults another person is murder of their reputation or their standing, either in your own mind, the mind of the person you said it to or you insulted, or if you gossip about it, in the minds of those that you seek to influence. Because you know that's what gossip's about, don't you? It's about influencing other people to think negatively about somebody else. Guys, that's identity murder too. You see, when you insult someone, you assault them. Not physically, perhaps, but emotionally, and you've dishonored them as a person. The third example that Jesus gives us of dishonoring that God judges is this dishonor by cursing. Anyone who says, Jesus says, you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, some explanation is needed of this uh, this particular phrase. I'm not going to say a lot about it, but just to say that this form of dishonor has spiritual overtones. And it's about the dread. It has this dreadful sense about it of cursing someone to hell. It has this sense of cursing them to spend eternity with God. And this word fool is being used, and it's thought that it's used in the sense of Psalm 14.1, which says the fool has said in their heart, there is no God. So you fool means you're a person without God. He doesn't exist to you. It's a kind of a cursing. There's no God for you. It's like saying to somebody, you can never change. That for you, God does not exist and that they are without hope in the world. That's, that's just appalling. That is just shocking to me to think that that could even happen. I'm not even sure if it's possible for a born again believer to, to, to respond in that way. It comes out of a place of incredible hatred, I'd suggest. But, you know, I know it happens, even in families. I was hearing a a testimony of somebody recently whose life had been radically transformed by Jesus, who had been brought up in a broken home where stepfather after stepfather came and went, and they all had the same message for this young man. They all said to him things like, you're useless, that you are a problem. I'm only here because of your mother. If it wasn't for you, I'd be happy. I wish you were dead. I wish you'd never been born. You will have no future. You have no existence. You are worthless. I can't even begin to think how a man can do that to a child. And this testimony was told in a public forum, and the man cried as he told us these things. It it broke our hearts with him to hear what he'd been through and then how he'd discovered the love of the Father and how that had transformed his life from the inside out. Nobody is ever without hope in this world. I just want to say nobody can fall too far. Nobody can wreck it too much. Nobody can sin too badly for them not to be restored, for their lives not to be changed, because we have a Father in heaven who sent his Son to redeem us and to take us back to him. It's a wicked kind of psychological and spiritual murder which 
would attempt to make a soul irredeemable. (laughs) For this kind of dishonor, one theologian proposes Jesus' sentiment here is, the man who tells his brother that he's doomed to hell is in danger of hell himself. Quite so. I just want to pause at this point. Uh, We're nearly through, but I just feel like we need a pause. Um, We've looked at three kinds of dishonor that God judges, anger, insult, and cursing. And, you know, the standards, I, I don't know if you felt the weight of the standard. It's very high. And I don't think there's any one of us in this room or on the Internet who won't have fallen short of some of those thoughts and feelings and we need to put it right and as we saw last time it's a heart matter and the full extent of the law must be faced without fear if you're a believer today you don't need to be afraid of the law because jesus has fulfilled everything he is righteous but these revelations of how far we've fallen short as believers means that we can repent gain forgiveness and our lives can be changed to the revelation of who Jesus says that we can be. So I just literally want to pause for a few minutes and allow you just to do business with God. Just if there's a, a position, a situation that's come up in your mind, whether with somebody else in the church or with a family member, just bring that to God right now. Just put it right with him. Just do it in a moment. So I'm just going to stop talking and just allow you to engage with God for a few minutes and then we'll carry on. The Bible says if we confess our sins to him, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I just want to declare that over you, what you've confessed to God, he has released you from and forgiven you. Now just receive forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So in the last few minutes, I just want to take you through verses 23 to 26, where Jesus brings practical application to his own teaching. So this is one of those occasions where I, as the preacher, don't need to think of the practical application because Jesus does it so well in his own sermon. So I'm just simply going to take you through that. He shows us how in the kingdom, how in kingdom living, when we mess up, anybody ever messed up? When we mess up, 
He shows us how we should pursue restoration of relationship and be reconciled to one another quickly. And I'm so glad that Jesus somehow doesn't expect any of us to live up to these standards and that he's done it all. You see, we have a new identity in Christ. And that enables us to come out of that place of forgiveness that we've just experienced. And it gives us the strength to humble ourselves to bring restoration and freedom of relationship to those around us and ultimately to the world. That's what it's about. Because we are ambassadors of Christ and therefore ministers of reconciliation. So let me say this. Let me just take you through this. The first thing Jesus says is you need to take personal responsibility. If you've messed up, you need to take personal responsibility. Verse 23, if you're offering a gift at the altar and remember your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So it's a bit like this. Imagine you're at church on a Sunday. You're just coming into worship. You've got up early to get here. You've traveled all the way. You've come into worship and you realize that someone is something against you. And that Jesus says in that moment, it's often in that place of worship as we begin to connect to God that this understanding comes and you realize things are not quite right. So what Jesus is saying is that first, before we try to worship God, before we enter into that place, go, humble yourselves, speak to them. Be reconciled, literally be reconnected to your brother, making the priority of reconnecting with that other believer over connecting to God. That's how serious Jesus is about it. Make the priority reconnecting to your brother before you try to connect to God. Of course, if you're angry with them, you won't want to do this. If you've named and shamed them, it will be embarrassing for you. If you've cursed them, well, we need to talk about that. But note this, that the onus here, Jesus says, is on the offender. It's my responsibility if I've upset somebody to go and talk to them, first of all. Later on, Jesus will say, the person who's been offended needs to forgive, <laughs> But here Jesus says, you've got to go, humble yourself and say, look, I'm sorry, I've messed up. Will you forgive me? To take personal responsibility, reconciliation is a kingdom ministry, (laughs) not just doing it right all the time. Actually, reconciliation is right in the heart of the ministry that we have as church for one another and in the world. And second application of Jesus' teaching is... um, What you practice in the church, take out into the world. What you practice in the church, take out into the world. I love this, that whenever Jesus teaches on the kingdom, he always takes it out beyond the church and in uh, the community of believers, and he takes it out to where we are salt and light. He takes us out so that we make a difference. And so here Jesus is talking presumably about a business transaction with an unbeliever who's opposing you. And he says this, settle matters quickly. Literally, make friends with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer. And you're going to get thrown into prison. And I'm telling you, you're not getting out of there until you've paid the whole of what you owe. And... I don't, so in stressing the importance of resolving disputes with unbelievers, Jesus, and we don't probably understand this, but Jesus is describing a potentially hopeless outcome. Because the reality is, is if you are in jail, you can't repay your debt. 
You've got no means of earning money. That's how hopeless the situation is. Jesus uses this scenario to return again to the matter of anger, actually. He's returning you to unresolved anger because if you're angry, you won't resolve. And this is where it leads to. It leads you to prison. So you think, I'm angry, I'm entitled to be angry. No, Jesus says, it leads you into prison and you're never going to get out of there. While you're still together, while you're still talking, even if it's awkward, even if it's embarrassing, you're better to try and sort things out because you'll put yourself in prison otherwise. That's what kingdom living is about. And that's what identity is about, that you realize I've messed up, but I'm going to be enough of a enough of a man or a woman of God to humble myself and say, I have messed up, I'm sorry. I know I'm forgiven by Jesus, but I want your forgiveness too. I want to be reconnected to you. That's what kingdom living is about. Don't let anger murder your relationships anymore. I want to encourage you. If you're at risk of that, if that's the direction you're going out in a relationship that you're part, part of, don't let anger murder your relationships. Let me just conclude then. I, I mean, we've covered some pretty serious things here today, haven't we? Um, you were just coming for a nice morning out at church and you've had some really challenging stuff said to you, but I'm only telling you what the Bible says. Uh, and it's nothing personal. Nobody's told me anything about you. It's just where we're at in the passage. <laughs> but it's important how we relate to one another and that we keep short accounts with one another and deal with our own hearts. And it's rightly serious, actually. The context is murder. That's what we're talking about. But I've also deliberately allowed us to feel the full extent of the law and what that's about this morning. I want us to feel the seriousness of that, not to condemn us, but to lead us continually to the Savior. We all get it wrong from time to time. But when relationships are at stake, especially with other believers, then we must feel Jesus' imperative to sort things out humbly and quickly. And if you've, if you're aware of something that you, you just need to talk to somebody today, I want to encourage you to do that before you go home today, before everybody leaves, or to pick up the phone if they're not here, or phone a family member and arrange to get together. So in finishing, I want to suggest and I'd love to have taken this further, but we've, we've run out of time. But I want to suggest that the antidote to offense is love, which the Bible tells us will cover a multitude of sins. When you love other people, when you practice loving other people in the church, you learn how to overlook all kinds of offense and avoid unrighteous anger and all the rest. But love here and then take it out into your workplaces, into your families, into your places of influence, because that's what the kingdom is all about. I'm going to close now, but I just want us to pray, and I just want to ask God for a fresh revelation of his love so that we can love other people more freely. If you're up for that, just stand with me, and we'll pray together. Lord, we've felt to some degree or other the seriousness of your law today. And we're right back at Romans where it says all of 
sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we're so grateful for the cross. We're so grateful for the resurrection and the new life that we can have in Jesus. We're so grateful to you, Jesus, our Saviour. But Lord, would you now give us a revelation of the weight of your love for us? Uh, As we come to a close, Lord, would you just pour out, like we were hearing sung prophetically over us earlier on, those waves of your love just pouring out from your heart right now. I just pray right now for a baptism of love. And if anybody's felt condemned or, or anything like that, just wash it away right now in Jesus' name. Let your love and your acceptance minister to us in Jesus' name. And I pray, Lord, that as we are ministered to by love, that we'd find an ability within ourselves to love other people too. I pray for an increased revelation of what it means to love from the love that you've loved us with. We've all got good parents now because you are our father. And Lord Jesus, we just pray that you would release us more in loving other people for your glory. Amen.